We will be in Matthew, not Romans. I don't dare take the next passage. Although I probably could go back to chapter 14 and it would be pretty fresh for all of us. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 5.9. It's going to take me a minute to get there. A uh, little preacher secret. It's really difficult to do a one-timer. You know, when you get into a series, things kind of build on themselves, but certainly I want to give you a little bit of context before we get there. Matthew 5.9 is a part of what are known as the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes make up the first portion of probably, definitely, the most famous sermon ever preached. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in short, the, the Sermon on the Mount is about the Kingdom of God coming into the world. It's helpful to think about Kingdom things this way. The Kingdom has come. The Kingdom is coming. And the Kingdom will come. The Kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the King who came 2,000 years ago to establish God's kingdom forever. And the kingdom is still coming. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose from death. He is alive. He is seated on the throne of God's kingdom. Right now, He lives and reigns with all power and authority, all rule and dominion. His kingdom continues to come in and through His people by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the King of the Kingdom. His Kingdom has come. His Kingdom is coming. And His Kingdom will fully and finally come on that day when Jesus returns for the full and final rescue of His people. You know, to publicly display His rule and reign, His power and authority, to publicly display His glorious victory over Satan, sin, and death. In Matthew 13, Jesus says that the Kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds. And it's like a mustard seed that a man sowed in his field. It starts out as the smallest of all seeds, but it grows to be larger than all the plants into a big tree. Or it's like a bit of leaven that's placed into a batch of flour, and the leaven spreads so that it reaches the whole batch of flour, right? Jesus is the King that came to establish God's kingdom forever, and He has installed the kingdom of God on earth, and it will continue to grow to its full crop. Jesus sows the kingdom seed into His people, and it continues to spread in and through His people into all the world. The Sermon on the Mount is about God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven coming to earth as it is in heaven, in and through God's people. And the Beatitudes... Taken as a whole, they really give us a, an up-close and personal look at that. The conditions described in the Beatitudes are evidence of God's kingdom having come into a person's heart and mind, like inward transformation that shows up in outward change. They have often been called the hallmarks of the Christian life. Things, the, the, when I say conditions, uh, poor in spirit, meekness, hunger and thirst for righteousness, mercy, peacemaking, first and foremost, they, they testify to God's grace. You know, human beings are we're all naturally prideful and self-seeking, thinking ourselves self-sufficient. No one can be poor in spirit or hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but by God's grace. 
No one is broken and humbled by their sin until God intervenes. No one realizes their lack of righteousness and and hungers and thirsts for another righteousness, for right relationship with God and right living with God, unless God intervenes, unless we understand our need, unless He removes the scales from our eyes, unless He allows us to see ourselves in the true light, to know our need as sinners and, and to know the Savior. No one can be merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker, but by the grace of God. These conditions described in the Beatitudes, they point us to God's kingdom coming in and through God's people, which is first and foremost a work of His grace. The kingdom is coming. God is establishing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God is radically transforming a people. God is shining the light of His glory in and through His people into the darkness of this world. By the grace of God and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, you are the light of the world. Not only do the conditions described in the Beatitudes testify to God's work in His people, they also point to a Christian's work in the world. Things like mercy and peacemaking. A good way to think about it is we work out what God works in We are invited to participate in God's kingdom work. And our participation matters. You're going to hear me say that over and again tonight. Our participation matters. In in verse 7, Jesus says that it is the ones who are merciful, they shall receive mercy. Verse 9, the ones who are peacemakers, they shall be called sons of God. Guys, we know this. A A Christian is a supernatural recreation of God by God. God transforms us inwardly so that we can follow Him in His ways. It's all because of God's grace and our participation matters. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. Again, the Christian life is not possible unless God intervenes in a sinner's life, but it is absolutely possible by God's grace. We work out what God works in. Peacemaking is a work of the Christian. It is a part of our participation in establishing God's kingdom on earth. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is to just think about the nature of peacemaking. What is peacemaking? I'm teaching through the Sermon on the Mount in our 20s and 30s class, and I thought this particular verse complemented what we talked about in here last week. Last week we saw that the pursuit of harmony or like-mindedness within the body of Christ is not just some cute way to say, can't we all just get along? In fact, it requires us to stand firm in the truth. Because the like-mindedness that we're after is in accord with Jesus Christ. You know, standing firm in the truth, uh, it's not so popular these days. But we want to be in accord with Jesus Christ so that we may, with one voice, along with Christ, glorify our God and Father. It's not so popular even within the church at times to stand firm in the truth, so that pursuit of like-mindedness, it can be quite a difficult thing. 
So it is with peacemaking. Peacemaking is no cakewalk. Peacemaking is not, let's all just get along. Peacemaking is not finding middle ground. Peacemaking is not neutral or passive. And there is one God of all peace. There is one way to Him. You know, peace is one of those words that I think has become void of meaning in the culture. Much like hope, or faith, or love. We have a real need in the church of firming up our definitions, and the only way that we can do that is in the Scriptures. For instance, think about what does God say faith is? You hear everyone out there has faith, right? We all, oh, I just have faith. What does God say faith is? It's not a blind leap or a shot in the dark. It's, a, it's an assurance of things hoped for. We have a confident assurance in the things that we hope for. It's a conviction of things that are not seen. Our faith in Christ is not some blind, empty, wishful thinking. We have hope. You know, we have a conviction. We have assurance. Hebrews 11. So what is peacemaking? You know, when the Scriptures talk about the ultimate peace being made between God and sinful man, it has nothing to do with neutrality or middle ground. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, and He divides nations. He even divides families. Jesus is the most loved and the most hated man that has ever lived. Jesus is the most loved and most hated man that has ever lived. Peacemaking is not about everybody getting along. And Jesus was certainly not passive in His peacemaking. He entered into enemy territory. And He had a very particular mission to make peace between God and sinful man. And He actively pursued that peace until it was made on the cross. Turn to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, starting in verse 19. Colossians 1.19 and following. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. The ultimate peace came when God reconciled the world to God by His death. When Christ reconciled the world to God by His death. Christ made peace where there was hostility. We were alienated from God, hostile in our minds, doing evil deeds which God hates, but Christ came to reconcile us to God. He made peace between us and God. And the peace was made by His death on the cross. You know, we're not talking about peacekeeping. That would imply that there was peace to start with. We're talking about going where there is no peace and making peace. Christ went deep into hostile enemy territory here on earth where Satan ruled and sin reigned and 
people followed suit in his evil ways. It was not for the sole purpose of the conqueror of his enemies that Christ came. He conquered Satan's sin and death for sure, but we were his enemies. He did not conquer all of his enemies. He came to rescue a multitude of them. To make a way for our reconciliation to him. He suffered to the point of death, death on a cross. He bore the full weight of the Father's wrath for our sin, for me and for you. And we didn't even know that we needed it. We didn't know about the hostility. We didn't know that peace needed to be made. He made peace where there was hostility between us and Him for our reconciliation. That is the ultimate meaning of peacemaking. We're not the Savior, so what does it mean for us to make peace? Blessed are the peacemakers. What does it mean for us to make peace? Number one, I would say that it means for us to seek reconciliation between God and sinful man. It means for us to seek reconciliation between God and sinful man. Well, how do we do that? 2 Corinthians 5, if you want to turn there. Second Corinthians five, starting in verse seventeen. How do we seek reconciliation between God and sinful man? Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Here again, it's established all this new creation business, this recreation, is it's all from God. It's all by His grace, and our participation matters. God reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and He gave us, the text says, this ministry of reconciliation. And everybody else that was, is, and will be reconciled to God, they were reconciled through Christ as well. The peace has already been made. The reconciliation has already been established. Christ made that peace by the blood of His cross. And He has entrusted the message to us, the good news. Now, when the text says that in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, does that mean that everyone in the world is presently reconciled to God? It can't mean that. There wouldn't be any need for the ministry of reconciliation, you know, that He's entrusted to us. There wouldn't be any need for the next portion of the passage. But on the one hand, we do have to say what the text says. The work is done. The reconciliation is already established. But as the later part of the passage 
indicates our participation matters. I think this is a helpful way to think about it. It's as if slavery has been abolished by law, and we are sent out to tell all of the slaves all of the wonderful news. Of course, there's going to be opposition at every turn. You have slave owners that aren't really going to like your message, right? I don't know about this abolition business, but I like my slaves. Well, slavery's abolished. You may even have opposition from slaves who refuse to leave their life for fear of the unknown, right? Well, I don't know. I've gotten kind of comfortable here in this life of slavery. I I don't know what's out there. I, I know that I'm taken pretty well care of here. But we have one mission. We have to let the slaves know that they are free. It has already been established. Go and be free. The text says that the reconciliation between the sinful world and God has been accomplished in Christ and that we are the messengers of the good news. Again, does that mean that everyone in the world is reconciled? No, the reconciliation is in Christ. Certainly there are those that refuse Him. But in Christ, there is no more hostility between God and sinful man. In Christ, there is peace. All men have a need to be found in Christ. Of course there's opposition at every turn. There are those who insist that our message is narrow-minded. One way, really? Those who don't understand the hostility. There are those who refuse to leave the former life of slavery. And there are those that are committed to keeping people in slavery to sin. But we must go on. We are the ambassadors for the true peace that is found in Christ. The peace that was made by the blood of the cross. Notice that peacemaking is not a lighthearted affair. We are in the middle of hostile territory, in the middle of a war. We are ambassadors for our Lord and Savior. He is sending us into enemy territory to proclaim the peace that was made on the cross. The reconciliation between Him and sinful men. Which is unbelievable news if you're one who is poor in spirit. Broken and humbled by your sin, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you recognize your lack, but your sin stands in the way. Well, Christ has made a way. He became sin for us. Be reconciled to God. We know that there's opposition, but it is legitimately good news to a lot of people. Of course, we're naturally prideful, self-seeking. We think ourselves to be self-sufficient. The message that they're even needs to be reconciliation between man and God is not a popular one. It takes realizing our lack of sufficiency, understanding our need, and being shown to the Savior. A lot of people don't like that message. Thus, a lot of people don't want to hear about the peace that we've come to minister. Because a lot of people don't understand the need for it. In fact, to many, it's downright offensive. We need to hear, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking is the work of a Christian. It's not an easy work. We didn't have time to go into it, but you can probably understand how uh, or why Jesus speaks about persecution next. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. All this peacekeeping business uh, gets you persecuted. On this point, I think that 
it should serve as a rebuke and an encouragement to all of us. The, the rebuke is that God has so planned and purposed, purposed in His ways that, that we are ministers of His reconciliation. And our ministry is inseparably linked to the rescue and reconciliation of others. The kingdom is coming in and through His people. He has called His ministers to minister the reconciliation. Our ministry is linked, inseparably linked to the rescue and reconciliation of others. We are His ministers of reconciliation. How many people are there in your life, in my life, that we shy away, sometimes cower away, from proclaiming the peace and reconciliation that is in Christ. How often do we plead with people to be reconciled to God? How many slaves should be former slaves if they only knew about the freedom? How many of our brothers and sisters are out there not living as though they're reconciled just because they haven't heard from the ministers of reconciliation. How many people in my life, in your life, let us proclaim the Gospel? Isn't it good news? The peace is established. The reconciliation is established and we carry the message. The encouragement, as I look at it, is that we are inseparably linked to God's plans of rescuing His people. Our participation matters. We get to take part in the joys of conversion and transformation. The work is done in Christ. We get to walk with slaves into their freedom. One, to make peace is to seek reconciliation between God and people. And two, I would say through God, to seek reconciliation in our relationships with other people. Or you know, between other people, we get to serve as peacemakers. Not only are we seeking restoration and reconciliation in people's relationships with God, but also with one another. And here again, let me say that this is not possible, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace. The normal is for broken relationships to remain broken and estranged, is it not? The normal is for broken relationships to remain broken. But one of the ways that the kingdom is coming is peacemaking in our stressed and broken and even hostile and estranged relationships. In fact, I would say that you will even find your faith strengthened and joy increased in these pursuits. I didn't say this earlier, but you know every uh, blessing that he pronounces, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, in pronouncing his blessing, he's really blessing is a language of covenant. So he's really pronouncing his people uh, in the beatitudes. He's identifying his people. These people with these marks, these are my people. But he's also identifying the way for his people to seek to walk further into his way of blessing, deeper into him, if you will. The, the only reason that you can make peace is because you're his. So go and make peace, and there you will find your faith strengthened and your joy increased. This was certainly the case for the disciples, was it not? Persecution or not, they were always rejoicing. 
you know, rejoicing that they were found worthy to be able to suffer for His name. And this will be the case for you as well. I want to tell you a story, and we will close. A story that I heard uh, not too long ago about a young man who's in college and uh, had a really difficult childhood. He was abuse by his father, um, just without going into too much detail, some of the most horrific things really that I've ever heard from the time that he was very little um, and as he grew up. And so I I don't think that he's been around his father much in quite some time and uh, just a, a horrible story. Well, this young man has come to Christ uh, within the last, I don't know, couple years, and his dad has recently tried to reconnect with him. Um, you know, he's up at school, he's kind of out from under, I guess, his mom's overlook or whatever, and he gets a call from his dad, son, I want to meet, I want to meet up with you, I want to talk to you. Of course, he, he doesn't respond for a while, and he doesn't really know, and I mean, horrible, horrible things. Use your imagination. He had a horrible childhood at the expense of this man. And as he prays and as he asks for counsel and different things, he decides, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go meet him. Um, and all the while, he's fighting within himself, doing the very hard work, I guess, of forgiveness, right? There, reconciliation really isn't up to us, uh, th- that's kind of a two-way street, but we can certainly prepare for it. And so he's doing the very hard work of forgiveness in his own heart, and just searching with the Lord and, and wrestling with, what am I going to say, and how's this going to go? But ultimately, he's seeking reconciliation. He's peacemaking. So he goes at the time that his dad said, and he shows up, and he sits there for a while, and his dad didn't show up. So here he is in the restaurant all this time, been working in my heart. I'm going to see the man face to face and I'm prepared to forgive him. And he doesn't show up. And you'd think, man, how dejected. And honestly, it wasn't that. I think that as time went on, he was very thankful that he didn't have to have that interaction, but he was very deeply encouraged to find himself in that place willing to forgive the man. Willing to forgive the man that ruined his life for so many years, caused so much pain and so much hurt, he actually left that time rejoicing. Faith strengthened. God is real. If I could face Him willing to forgive Him, and I know that it's there because I saw it in my heart, he was encouraged. I think for all of us, it ought to be an encouragement to seek Peace in broken, estranged, difficult relationships. Uh, Whatever it may be, encourage peace in broken, estranged, difficult relationships, particularly among our brothers and sisters in Christ. We all have to do the very hard work of forgiveness. We'll leave the reconciliation up to God. Let's pray. Father God, we do... uh, We thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have saved us, that You've rescued us, uh, that You have made a way for our reconciliation with You, that we could live 
as children, um, as a part of your family and your kingdom forever. Lord, that you would include us so inseparably from your work of peace and reconciliation um, as ministers of that reconciliation. Help that to weigh on us. Help that to uh, charge us and move us out into the world, into the relationships that you've put in our life, and even to plead with people to be reconciled to God, that we would see more and more people come to know the joys of walking with you. Thank you for this day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.